Hello and welcome to the Earthquake Science Center seminar series for May 19th, 2021. As a reminder, please turn off your cameras and mute your microphones. All these functions are available through the menu bar that pops up when you hover over the bottom of your Teams window. Uh, live captioning is also available if you click the three dot more button and choose turn on live captions. Before we begin today, there are a few announcements. Next week's seminar is going to be by Maria Marcovita will present about the impacts of disasters on Bay Area households. The next all hands meeting is June 11th. Austin Elliott is giving the public lecture next week on May 27th. His talk will be entitled, Where Earthquakes Hide in the Desert, What We've Learned from Recent Fault Ruptures in the Western US. And finally, there's a Shake Alert Social Science Symposium tomorrow, May 20th from nine to five, and we'll put a link in the chat uh, with more information about that. Today, our speaker is Melody French from Rice University, and I'll hand it over to Tamara Jepson, who will be introducing her. If you have any questions for today's speaker, you can either type them into the chat or raise your hand. We'll be monitoring the chat and reading out the questions at the end, uh, but feel free to unmute yourself and turn on your, on your video to chime in and talk to the speaker yourself when we call on you. With that, I'll turn it over to Tamara. All right, thank you. It's my pleasure to introduce Melody today. So Melody French received her bachelor's in physics with honors in geology from Oberlin College before she went on to the University of Wisconsin-Madison for, for her master's degree in geology. She then went on to pursue a PhD in geophysics at Texas A&M University. From there, she became a NSF postdoctoral fellow at the University of Maryland and is now an assistant professor at Rice University, where she leads the rheology and deformation research group and focuses on understanding how and why faults slip and what conditions lead to our inhibit earthquakes. Last year, she received an NSF career award to examine path dependent slip on shallow, shallow subductions on migrant crests. And I know she's been very busy serving on the steering committee for the subduction zones and 40 community initiative. So I'm very excited to hear more from her on the work that she's done to understand slow slip and subduction zones and some of the factors related to that. So thank you, Melody. Thanks, Tamara. Um, certainly wish I could be there to see what you're doing in the lab, but uh, thank you for uh, inviting me today to share some of the work that we've been doing at Rice over the past few years. Um, all of the work that I'm going to talk about is linked through the theme of trying to understand the physical environment where the phenomena of slow slip occurs along subduction plate boundaries in particular. So my group uses laboratory experiments to study how rocks deform, uh, much like your lab at the USGS. Uh, and you will see some of the results from those experiments today. Uh, but you'll also see a bunch of other work that's um, not lab-based and only made possible through uh, collaboration with these folks here. So I know that many of you uh, are familiar with observations of slow slip and related phenomena like tremor and low-frequency earthquakes. Um, which has received a lot of attention over the past 20 years or so. Um, I'm still going to describe those observations a little bit today, emphasizing the features um, of the system that we're working to try to understand. So we know that the largest earthquakes on Earth occur along the subduction plate boundary fault called the megathrust, and that initial approximations at least have the of the megathrust indicate that to a very first order, uh, earthquakes tend to initiate within the seismogenic zone and that it's bounded by an aseismic region down dip, and in some cases, an aseismic region up dip. And so I don't think I need to describe uh, to this group um, to, in too much detail the observations of episodic slow slip and tremor that have been made over the past 20 years, um, since many of you are actually probably more qualified than I am to present on that topic. Um, however, for the past, like I said, two decades or so, geoscientists have been documenting slip modes faster than a seismic slip, but order of magnitude slower than earthquakes, um, and that can only be recorded with GPS at the surface. And at the same time, those uh, slow slip modes have also been correlated in some cases in time and space with uh, modes of slip that had previously been in indistinguishable from sort of background noise, or that is the tremor phenomenon. And so the science community has been trying to determine both how prevalent these modes of slip are, um, and uh, my particular interest in uh, is what causes them to occur. And so what is sort of remarkable about these observations, in my opinion, uh, is that, uh, and not necessarily uh, that they occurred, we've sort of not long known that earthquakes and a slip uh, 
at plate rates aren't the only way that a fault can slip. Uh, but what's sort of interesting is that they tend to occur at regular recurrence intervals and were documented in enough places that they seem to be part of the fault slip cycle, meaning that they are governed either by physics that was not transient or unique to a specific subduction uh, segment or geometry, but seem to be at least a fundamental part of some systems. And so in the time since the initial observations, um, slow slip, tremor, and or related phenomena like low frequency earthquakes have been documented in all of these subduction zone segments. Um, and there are a lot of challenges in interpreting this record. Um, for instance, the depth ranges at which they occur vary from place to place and some of the features of the slip uh, varies and we don't know why. Um, in addition, not all subduction zone segments are equally well instrumented, so it's not always clear when slip modes do not exist versus when they're just not detected or documented. But most observations of slow slip and tremor um, have been made down dip of the seismogenic zone. Um, and there are observations up dip of the seismogenic zone as well, although those observations are fewer, um, partially uh, because they're likely under-documented because recording them up dip requires offshore instrumentation uh, in contrast to this deeper region, which can be better monitored from onshore instruments. And so there are several reasons that slow slip uh, phenomena uh, and understanding them is important to understanding subduction zone ha hazards. Um, personally, my motivation for understanding them is uh, just that the fact that we don't as a community agree on what their cause is. Uh, and there are lots of hypotheses for what their cause might be, but we don't agree on what the cause is. That fact indicates that there's something about either the mechanics or the material properties or the conditions at depth that we still don't understand. And so um, in the process of simply studying the cause of these slip phenomena, we're actually learning a whole lot about the conditions at depth and about fault mechanics and subduction zones. Uh, so today, I want to talk about uh, two properties of the subduction plate boundary that I'm interested in, in understanding better um, to help understand uh, where and why slow slip phenomena occur. And the first is the structure and composition of the plate boundary uh, at depth. So most of our earlier models of uh, earthquake physics approximate sort of a near planar fault like this outcrop here. This is the San Gabriel Fault, uh, an exhumed and extinct strand of the San Andreas that has accommodated about 30 kilometers displacement all within this very narrow zone. This is the field uh, notebook for scale. Um, in contrast, this is an outcrop showing an exhumed subduction plate boundary from uh, uh, near deep slow slip depths. This is the Arosa zone in the Swiss Alps. And um, so obviously much more structurally and compositionally complex. Uh, so while not all faults are planar, like the San Gabriel, the approximation of a planar fault has worked well for our first order models that predict things like seismogenic slippery seismic creep. And subduction zones, however, are notoriously heterogeneous and variable in structure and composition, in part because of the complex uh, physical and chemical paths the rocks take as they're being subducted. And yet, despite all of this uh, complexity, slow slip is not an uncommon phenomena, and it tends or it can propagate for hundreds of kilometers through the heterogeneity, um, which tends to imply to me that either the processes that are accommodating slow slip uh, in tremor are insensitive to that heterogeneity, or some aspects of that heterogeneity are actually similar between subduction zones, and it may even influence the slip mode. Um, but either way, to understand the causes of slow slip, then we need better characterization of the compositions and structures along the megathrust and how they vary with depth and how variable they are between locations. And the other property that I want to talk about is pore fluid pressure. So there's uh, evidence from seismic tomography and of the subduction interface uh, that it's a fluid-rich zone in many locations where there's also a slow slip uh, and or tremor. And this is an example from Nankai. It's a cross-section cross showing this fluid-rich region indicated by high Poisson's ratio in red and yellow that uh, in, within the same region as uh, observed slow slip. And other evidence um, includes uh, sometimes uh, slow slip and or tremor have been shown to be modulated by tidal forces, which uh, people have interpreted to require a high pore fluid pressure, 
pore fluid pressure that's near lithostatic. Um, and so although that correlation doesn't necessarily imply that pore fluid pressure is causing silsa, but it's at least uh, warrants um, further investigation of where pore fluid pressures might be coming from and what role they might play. Um, so uh, keeping these two properties in mind, the structure and composition of the plate boundary and the origin and role of pore fluid pressures, then I'm actually going to sort of peruse four different topics relatively briefly that we've been working on um, to understand uh, the conditions and the geology of Silsa. So each of these tackle some aspect of understanding either the conditions or the environment where Silsa concern but uh, occurs, but I'm not going to be focusing on um, what the actual mechanism of Silsa is, more understanding the environment of Silsa. And so the first project I want to talk about is uh, an attempt to understand where fluids at the depths of the deeper slow slip uh, and tremor might be coming from. And so it's believed that fluids that originate from seawater trapped in sediments in pore spaces are generally expelled at shallower depths. And so when we talk about high pore fluid pressures at deep slow slip conditions, then generally uh, fluids released from metamorphic dehydration reactions are evoked. invoked. Um, one common uh, reaction is the dehydration of serpentinite. Uh, and these hypotheses actually require often significant updip travel of the fluids um, from depth uh, updip to the regions of silica along the plate boundary. And so uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that and um, and whether or how much updip uh, fluid migration is required and uh, what what these sources of fluids might be. Um, so this study was led by one of our departmental postdoctoral fellows, Kaylee Condit, who is a petrologist and structural geologist who worked with me. Um, and we also worked with another one of our departmental postdoctoral fellows, Jonathan Delph, who's a seismologist now at Purdue. Um, so I'm actually probably the least qualified of the group to talk about it, but uh, here I go. Um, so in this study, we compared observed depths of slow slip and tremor to the depths of predicted dehydration reactions in common subduction zone rocks. So to do that, um, we first compiled the distributions of tremor and slow slip along six segments of three subduction zones. Um, this is the compilation for Cascadia. Uh, tremor densities are shown in map view here uh, with the highest densities in blue. Um, and Jonathan compiled the data from the Pacific Northwest Tremor Catalog and the World Tremor Database. Um, and here we show depth distribution profile of tremor along uh, this transect here and this transect here. So two depth distributions, uh, along with uh, approximated uh, extensive slow slip compiled from the literature. Uh, and the other two subduction zones we studied were Nankai and Mexico. Again, two sub segments each also showing compiled tremor and uh, so extent of slow slip in these along these four segments as well. Um, we studied these six segments in particular because one, they were well instrumented enough to document tremor and slow slip. Uh, and also importantly, there were geodynamic models from the same segments that allow us to approximate the pressure temperature path of the subducting uh, plate boundary. Uh, so those were the criteria we used in selecting these six segments. So next for this sort of comparison, then um, Kaylee used the thermodynamic modeling software uh, uh, Perplex to calculate the mineral phases in four lithologies that are present along the subduction plate boundary. And so here I'm just showing the results for um, an average mid-ocean ridge basalt. I'll show the others in a moment. And she used the she used published chemical composition from ORB, and then used Perplex to determine the mineral assemblages that would be present in uh, subducted MORB over the range of pressures up to 2.5 GPA and temperatures up to 650 Celsius, which encompasses uh, the conditions of deep silica and tremor. And so, for this example of MORB shown here, uh, important phase boundaries are labeled. But more importantly, actually, is that the, uh, this is shaded for mineral bound water content. Um, so high water mineral bound water content is in blue and low is in is in red. Um, and so 
the next thing she did was to take the depth temperature paths for those six uh, different subduction segments in the geodynamic models and converted them to pressure temperature path um, and laid them over these phase maps. And so where these paths, this is shallowest conditions to deepest conditions, where these paths cause, uh, cross gradients in the mineral bound water, then we can infer that that water is being released as poor, poor, poor water. Um, and so for the MORB, then we see evidence of dehydration around, along all of the paths, uh, except for Key, which is actually uh, follows the coolest path um, of the six segments that we, we looked at. So looking now at all four of the compositions, um, these are results for all four with the same six paths superimposed on them, just showing uh, the mineral bound water content. Um, so the subducting oceanic plate in this example is represented by our investigation of both MORB and uh, a MORB that's been chemically altered at the seafloor. And then we also looked at the dehydration of serpentinite, um, which holds a lot of water. And then um, to uh, evaluate dehydration of metasediments, then we investigated the dehydration of the metapelite. So the next step is then to compare where, where are these dehydration reactions that we're crossing along these paths? How do they physically in space correlate to where we're seeing tremor and SOSA? Um, and so uh, I'm about to start flashing data on right now. I don't have any data on this map, but I just want to, or on these graphs, I just want to explain what's going on. Um, so uh, here again is the per, uh, distribution of tremor, only depth now is the x-axis with slow slip for these six different segments. Um, and I'm going to show mineral bound water content with depth uh, for each of the mineral, for each of the rock types, um, one at a time. So here's the mineral bound water for content for metapelite. Uh, a decrease uh, in represents dehydration and a release of water, and the light gray band around the line uh, represents an estimated uncertainty uh, in temperature, plus or minus 50 degrees Celsius. So in generally, we find that the metapelite uh, seems to gradually uh, dehydrate with depth, uh, sh shown as a decrease in mineral bound water, uh, including at slow slip depths. And that water is released primarily by the breakdown of lawsonite, uh, and then also chlorite, epidote, and amphibole. And increasing depth. Um, this is the result for the two MORB comp uh, compositions. The MORBs produce very similar results to one another. Um, uh, and again, the light shading is an estimate of uncertainty, so the dark line indicates the average. Um, so the MORBs actually release water in very stepped dehydration reactions. Uh, uh, these reactions are from the breakdown of chlorate and, and lawsonite. And in general, a lot in many cases, these steps actually um, correlate pretty closely with the distribution of tremor and slow slip in the subduction zone. So they overlap in space. Okay. Um, uh, the, the one uh, um, exception is in key, where these step dehydration reactions actually have, tend to happen. Uh, uh, at greater depth, which is sort of interesting because the tremor in key is more diffuse. And uh, my understanding is that the slip is also hard to, to resolve here. And then finally, um, we know serpentinite doesn't actually dehydrate until greater depths. And so dehydration of serpentinite, if that was a source of pore fluids, would require, in most cases, significant uh, updip migration, except for perhaps in Jalisco Kalima, uh, where we see a, a rapid dehydration uh, right at the tremor distributions. Um, so our key takeaway message uh, from this study um, so far is that the updip migration of fluids might not necessarily be required uh, to produce high pore fluid pressures at slow slip conditions. Um, that fluid dehydration at in situ conditions um, is expected from uh, dehydration of both MORB and metapelite and might be sufficient to actually produce high pore fluid pressures in situ. Um, so uh, the next study I wanted to sort of uh, give an overview of uh, actually investigates the uh, sources of fluids at the shallow, much, much shallower, the shallow slip conditions, so up in this region here. 
And this is a study that I'm working on um, with my colleague at Rice, Julie Morgan. Um, and here we're going to demonstrate that unlike uh, the deep case where we're looking at fluid pressures generated by dehydration reactions, up here, um, fluid pressure seems to be generated, at least in our case study, um, by sediment compaction. So uh, here we're actually looking at the northern Hikarangi margin, and the northern Hikarangi margin hosts diverse modes of shallow slip, including tsunami-genic earthquakes uh, and recurring slow slip events. So um, the epicenter of a 1947 tsunami-genic earthquake is shown by this uh, blue star here, and um, two 2010 slow slip events um, are indicated. Their 40 millimeter slip contours are shown here and here, and then um, there was a 2014 slow slip event, and its slip contours uh, in millimeters are shown with the black lines. And so this is a, a region where we see um, really a, a variety of slip behavior. And so IODP Expedition 375 drilled uh, and collected samples from four sites across this margin to better understand the habitat and the conditions of shallow slow slip. Um, and this is a cross-section parallel to this transect of sites and through this site, uh, U1518. Uh, it's thought that the 2014 slip event, um, which uh, is outlined in black here, uh, actually uh, propagated all the way to the seafloor, although, um, or all the way, to, yeah, all the way to the trench. Um, but it's not clear if it followed the megathrust or if it actually followed one of the splay faults. Um, and then again, the epicenter of the tsunamigenic earthquake is shown here as well. So Expedition 375 recovered rock from across this uh, one splay fault uh, called the Papaku Fault. Uh, it's, a, it's a splay fault in the frontal accretionary prism. And it's accommodated an estimated six kilometers of displacement. And it soles out into the megathrust. So I was not a part of the 375 team, uh, but my colleague, Julie Morgan was, and we've been working together um, to understand the strength uh, of the fault uh, and the in-situ conditions along the fault, including the pore fluid pressure and perhaps origin of any overpressure. So this is a lithostratic profile um, from the IODP report for site U1518 showing shipboard measurements of porosity with depth. Um, the prism here is comprised of about one to two kilometers thick sequence of accreted hemipelagic mudstones, um, but with interbedded sandstones, silts, and volcanic ash. The X-ray diffraction measurements show that there's actually very little compositional variation uh, with depth at this site. So the, the science team here, through these shipboard measurements, demonstrated that porosity decreases with depth, which is expected from simple sediment consolidation, even just under uniaxial strain conditions. This is a normal pattern. Um, however, at the fault zones, the Papaku fault and then a subsidiary fault beneath it, um, there are step increases in porosity. And so Julie and I wanted to use a soil mechanics approach and employ uh, something called critical state theory to understand the porosity profile here and what that might mean um, for the strength of the faults, for the history, the tectonic history of the system, and for any pore fluid pressure uh, in the system. And so an important assumption for uh, critical state mechanics is that for granular porous media um, of a given composition, then the strength is directly related to its porosity. Um, so by measuring, uh, and that, that both strength and porosity are controlled by the stress history. So that by measuring the strength and porosity, we might actually be able to understand the stress history. Um, and so to do this, uh, or to evaluate this, then I conducted deformation experiments on two samples recovered from the site, one in the hanging wall uh, indicated here, and one in the foot wall indicated here, and their, um, their porosities are also plotted with the porosities of the shipboard porosity measurements. Um, so uh, I think most of you are familiar with triaxial experiments, um, uh, given the lab that you all have there at the USGS, but I conducted um, triaxial deformation experiments on these um, samples uh, 
the two samples, one from the hanging wall and one from the foot wall. Compositionally, they're very similar. Uh, the hanging wall has about 52% clay, uh, whereas the foot wall sample actually has lower clay content at about 45, uh, but still both uh, clay rich. They also both contain quartz, feldspar, and calcite. So uh, our samples uh, or our cores from the samples that we deformed were all about half an inch in diameter and an inch in length. Um, and then we uh, conducted two types of tests on these. One, um, just simple isotropic compression tests. So that's where you just basically load the sample uniformly in all dimensions. And we measure the deformation of the sample with these gauges illustrated here. And then we uh, tested them using triaxial compression tests where you apply a confining pressure um, and then uh, advance the axial piston and measure the deformation of the samples there. Uh, and so I'm not actually going to spend too much time talking about the mechanical data, but I am going to show it in case you're interested and illustrate um, two general features that that uh, are important to understanding the differences between the hanging wall and fall wall history here. Um, so these are the results of the isotropic compression tests, which um, this is sort of a very specific way of plotting the data that is specific to soil mechanics. But we're plotting the void ratio, which is just the pore space divided by the solid space uh, as a function of the effective, effective pressure. Um, and deformation is initially elastic, so this is where we start loading it at the highest void ratio. It's initially elastic, um, and then uh, where it transitions to inelastic, which is generally illustrated by a straight line slope in this space, then uh, that's a measure of its strength. And so, uh, and then when we unload the sample, we get some of the elastic strain back. So if we compare the foot wall and the hanging wall, then one notable feature I just want to point out is that the foot wall actually has a higher yield strength. I mean, sorry, the hanging wall has a higher yield strength, um, which is important because the hanging wall is stronger in this case, um, even though it's sort of at shallower conditions. And the composition is very similar. Um, the other thing that I wanted to point out is from the triaxial uh, at the axial compression data. Um, and so the axial compression tests are shown here with the hanging wall in blue in the foot wall samples in red. And so this is the differential stress with axial strain for um, two confining pressures for the foot wall and one for the hanging wall. And this is just porosity change. So it's compacting throughout um, from in uh, these tests. But uh, what I wanted to point out here um, is that the hanging wall um, actually deformed by brittle fracture when we tested it. These are very low stresses, at least uh, for me. But uh, the hanging wall actually deformed by brittle fracture, and that's consistent with this sort of strain hardening to a peak strength and then some strain weakening. Um, but under all conditions, the foot wall uh, deformed ductally, and that's consistent with the sort of strain hardening behavior. Um, so without getting into too much detail, uh, we have a recent publication where we describe this in more detail, but without getting too much detail, we used the experimental results to develop relationships between porosity and strength, and then therefore stress history. Um, and I'm gonna describe, I'm gonna explain the results here. I'm happy to talk about this afterwards if you'd like. Um, but if we go back to our porosity profile, this is porosity, this is our site, um, then this uh, line shows what the effective vertical stress at this site is expected to be if the pore fluid pressure is hydrostatic. Uh, and so that's just calculated uh, by integrating the density of the material above. So if, if the, the vertical hydrostatic pore pressure, we expect the vertical stress to just be equal to the uh, weight of the material uh, minus the pore pressure. Okay, so that's what I'm showing here. Um, then the next thing we did was we used our laboratory measurements of strength to estimate the maximum vertical stress our samples would have experienced in their history if uh, they were only loaded in uniaxial strain. So that is, if the only stress our, experiment, our samples experienced was from the weight of the overlying sediment, what would that, uh, uh, what would that have been? Um, and so that's a huge assumption, but that's actually part of our evaluation. So I'm going to show what that those data look like, and then explain what that how we sort of interpret that. 
So including uncertainties, then if our hanging wall sample had only experienced uniaxial strain, then we expect that our strength means that it had experienced an effective vertical stress shown here. This is a lot of uncertainty, but in the moment. And for um, the, so the hanging wall then has experienced higher vertical stresses, it has experienced higher stresses than we would predict just from uniaxial consolidation. Because if it was just uniaxial consolidation at the present depth, it would be here. So our strength indicates it's experienced higher stresses. Um, this is actually not really that surprising. It's consistent with having a complex tectonic history, um, uh, more complex and simple uniaxial consolidation. And so this is what we would expect for this tectonic setting, no big deal. The foot wall, on the other hand, uh, is weaker than would be predicted from uniaxial consolidation. Um, and that is actually can only be explained if the effective stresses uh, not only are currently low in the rock, but have always been low at these conditions. And so the low strength of the foot wall can only be explained by having consistently elevated pore fluid pressure at this site. Uh, and so just taking this sort of extrapolation one step further, then uh, we use our laboratory-derived relationships between strength and porosity to extrapolate all of these porosities measured shipboard um, to uh, strength in the same analysis. Um, and find a generally consistent trend that the hanging wall is strengthened relative to what we would expect just due to consolidation. And the foot wall is in the fault zones are consistently weaker than what we would expect um, just from consolidation, indicating, again, persistently elevated pore fluid pressures. So the, the scenario that we think best uh, explains these observations, the weak foot wall and relatively strong hanging wall, um, is that prior to the development of the Papaku fault and this thrust fault, then these sediments in the foot wall were actually very close or at the seafloor. So very little material has been lost from, from here uh, during thrusting. So at the top of the, the foot wall here, then we would have been at the seafloor, very uh, shallow con conditions. And so we propose uh, that when the hanging wall was thrust up over the foot wall, uh, pore fluid pressures may not have been able, or pore fluids may not have been able to escape and uh, fast enough to maintain drained conditions. And so fluid overpressure developed in limited consolidation of the sediments, um, which remain somewhat overpressured and, and weak. The hanging wall, on the other hand, has experienced a history of higher effective pressures in a more complex stress state, and so it is stronger. Um, and we're not actually able to evaluate pore pressures um, given its relatively high strength. So our interpretation in this case is um, that it is possible uh, to potentially maintain, or it is potentially possible to maintain elevated pore fluid pressures uh, simply by sediment compaction or consolidation at shallow conditions. Um, which is one of, uh, it, it's, a, it's a known phenomenon. Um, uh, but so next I want to move on to the topic um, more focused on lithologies. What are the rock types like um, at uh, shallow slow slip conditions? Um, I'm going to start with experimental study. So this study was led by Noah Phillips, um, who uh, I met at CIDR when he was a PhD student, um, and now he's uh, a postdoc at Texas A&M. But he was uh, at McGill studying an exhumed subduction complex uh, to understand the geologic environment of shallow earthquakes and so forth. And so he was studying the Mugi Melange, which is considered an onshore analog of the Nankai subduction zone, where shallow silsip has been reported. And it outcrops here um, uh, along the southeast coast of Japan, where it's in fault contact with a turbidite sequence. And this is a cross section of Nankai uh, showing uh, the approximate depth and conditions, so about uh, seven-ish kilometers and 150 degrees C, um, conditions that his analog samples represent. And so Noah documented uh, two, um, two dominant lithologies along the exhumed subduction plate boundary that include uh, a shale matrix. So here's a sketch of this picture. Uh, a shale matrix containing blocks of altered basalt 
uh, sandstone and tuff, and then larger tabular sheets of basalt that are about five to 68 meters thick. And he showed structural evidence for earthquakes along the boundaries of the, the basalt. And so as part of his PhD, Noah spent a semester at Rice conducting deformation experiments to better understand how the material properties of these lithologies might contribute to the modes of slip that occur. And so Noah conducted what uh, we call triaxial shear experiments, um, which again, I'm sure many of you are very familiar with and that you conduct also in your lab at USGS. Um, but he, so he placed powdered samples of the two different lithologies, basalt matrix and the shale uh, between uh, two forcing blocks. The sample is set up as shown here. Uh, the sample is jacketed and we have a poor fluid pressure port. Um, and then uh, the entire setup is placed in the pressure vessel. Uh, his experiments were conducted at 120 MPa confining pressure, 150 degrees Celsius, two pore pressures of 43 MPa representing hydrostatic and 84 representing elevated. And then he uh, stepped velocities between 0.2 and 20 micrometers per second, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, so these are the results of uh, six different experiments on the two lithologies encompassing the different pore fluid pressures. Um, and the numbers are just, these, this is, the data is shown as coefficient of friction. So that's just dividing the shear stress along the, the saw cut by the effective normal stress along the saw cut um, as a function of shear displacement along this surface. And then the numbers are indicating the velocity in micrometers per second. Uh, so he stepped the velocities during the test and I'll come to that, I'll get to that in a moment. But um, the, the first take home is that the altered basalt is consistently stronger than the shale matrix uh, at all of the conditions uh, that are tested. So generally we expect the shale matrix may accommodate more of the deformation over long time scales. Now, some of you know, but I'll re, uh, review anyway, that the friction coefficient of, uh, of any material can either increase or decrease with the rate at which it's sheared. Uh, and so this rate dependence, uh, we quantify as the change in friction coefficient uh, with the change of the natural log of velocity. So some of you know this is A minus B, um, and it's measured by stepping velocity like Noah did uh, in, these, in these experiments. And obviously, the, you notice that the strength change when he steps the velocity is actually quite small. Um, so the shale matrix uh, consistently um, has a positive rate dependence, meaning it gets stronger the faster it's sheared, shown down here. It's right, it's right here. Uh, this kind of behavior is generally thought to lead to aseismic creep. And then the altered basalt is consistently rate weakening, meaning it gets weaker the faster it's sheared. And this kind of behavior causes some acceleration and earthquakes, as you know. So this is consistent, first off, with NOAA's structural observations that the evidence uh, for earthquakes tends to occur along boundaries with the altered basalt. Um, and one in addition, uh, if we want to try to relate this uh, back to slow slip, which um, I'm going to at least try, uh, then uh, some hypotheses for the cause of slow slip uh, requires a mixture of rate strengthening and rate weakening rocks. So if slow slip were to occur in an environment like this, then we might uh, ask whether or not um, it's being accommodated in regions where we have a mixture um, of the shale matrix and altered basalt, um, but certainly helps us to understand where the earthquakes are happening at these shallow conditions in the altered basalt rocks. Um, so I'm going to end by uh, talking about um, uh, one final study, it's still ongoing um, in some respects, to look at, uh, that was sort of a look at the lithologies that are important in understanding earthquakes and slip at the shallow end. Now we're going back to the deep end um, to think about what lithologies um, and deformation mechanisms might host deep slip. Uh, so this is a project that I worked on and I'm still actually working on it, like I said, um, on different aspects with Kaylee Condit, who is a postdoc, uh, where we used an exhumed subduction plate boundary as a case study for understanding which lithologies may be accommodating deformation during slow slip. So given the many different types of 
rocks that are subducted and that develop uh, during metasomatism along the plate boundary, we were interested in the and thinking about the question, which of these lithologies should we be focusing on? Um, and is there a mechanical argument for focusing on one over another in our field studies? So we studied exhumed rocks from the Erosa zone, which is an exhumed uh, plate boundary interface that records uh, Cretaceous subduction of the South Pacific Ocean. Um, and we focused on the deepest exposure, which represents deformation at about um, 30 to 35 kilometers depth and 350 to 430 degrees Celsius. So this is a map view showing uh, the geologic map and uh, our two field sites here and here in the Swiss Alps. And uh, the lithologies when, within the um, Arosa zone include metamorphosed sediments and oceanic lithosphere, and in, in including products of metasomatism. Um, and this is a geologic map of, of this region, AR1, showing uh, an interpreted cross-section from X to X prime. And in this particular region, something that we really um, uh, take advantage of is that the different units uh, tend to occur in tabular sheets. So the different lithologies that we documented sort of at the map scale um, were metasedimentary rocks. There were politic schists um, that were cumulatively about 40 meters thick and calcareous schists um, in marbles, which were cumulatively about 60 meters thick. And then metamaphic, uh, metabasalt and chlorite schists and metaultramaphic serpentinites and talc schists, um, which were much thicker. Okay. So I'm going to very briefly describe the geometry uh, that we used to do, uh, understand the mechanics and then uh, generally describe uh, our results. Um, so we um, assumed a tabular plate boundary based on the mapping and for convenience, um, comprised of tabular lithologic units, each having a thickness constrained by the geologic mapping. So units that we mapped. Uh, we assumed a uniform dip of all layers of 15 degrees we assume that sigma one is 45 degrees to the plate boundary, um, which is based on studies in modern subduction zones. Uh, we assume that the vertical stress is overburdened in 900 MPa, and uh, that shear stress is constant across the boundary. So the shear stress within any unit is, const is consistent across uh, the boundary. And then we related the shear stress to deformation rate using within each individual unit using published constituent relations, both frictional and for uh, viscous mechanisms like dislocation creep or pressure solution. Um, then we related uh, the strain rate to the velocity simply by uh, multiplying um, thickness by, by the strain rate. So we have the velocity across each unit as a function of shear stress. Um, and then we said that the velocity across the entire plate boundary is just a sum of the uh, velocities of each unit. So now we have uh, velocity across each unit as a function of shear stress and velocity uh, of the total plate boundary uh, as a function of shear stress. And then we uh, did this analysis for different pore fluid pressures. So we use this lambda is just the ratio of the pore fluid pressure to the vertical stress where our hydrostatic pore pressure is 0.4 and lithostatic would be, would be one. I'm gonna show the results, um, very sort of an overview of the results uh, take home messages using a histogram. Um, so what we're showing here is creep plate boundary velocities and for slow slip plate boundary velocities. Then these histograms are showing the velocity of each individual unit across each individual unit. This is for hydrostatic pore pressures and these are showing the shear stresses that would be produced at these plate boundary velocities. Um, if a unit doesn't appear, it means it's deforming so slowly it's not even on the histogram. So at hydrostatic pore pressures, then viscous deformation of the metasediments, the calcareous schist and the uh, politic schist, would be accommodating deformation across the plate boundary for um, both aseismic creep plate rates and for slow slip velocities at, at these shear stresses. And these other units are basically deforming at negligible rates. As we increase the pore pressure, then we start to see a shift from the viscous deformation of the metasediments to frictional deformation of the, um, of the ultramafic and mafic phases. 
And so by a pore fluid pressure factor of 0.8, we're actually starting to see a shift in rates. So at, at aseismic creep rates, we're still, uh, plate boundary rates, we're still uh, deforming primarily by viscous deformation of quartz and calcareous schists. But at, if we were in, to increase the rate, again, the shear stress increases, but we're starting to get more strain partitioning into the schists. And then by a pore fluid pressure of 0.95, we would expect frictional deformation um, would actually be accommodated. Accom frictional deformation of these uh, ultramafic phases would be accommodating um, accommodating deformation uh, at both uh, aseismic rates and at, at and at slow slip rates. So if our um, if our observations that we have extremely low shear or interpretations that there are extremely low shear stresses and high pore fluid pressures um, uh, during slow slip, then we would be look primarily wanting to look for evidence of deformation within within these ultramafic phases. Um, and if if pore pressures aren't high, then slow slip would be accommodated, for instance, in these other phases, but again, um, the by viscous mechanisms, but the shear stress would be correspondingly high or higher. So um, just sort of to summarize this particular part of the study, then how deformation gets partitioned between different units and by different mechanisms is strongly controlled by fluid pressure. Uh, and in general, the calcareous rocks and the politic schists are the weakest except for extreme fluid pressures. Um, and so deformation uh, partitioning is uh, partitioned within the talc when we have at, at all rates when the pore pressures are uh, greater than or pore pressure factor is greater than 0.95. Um, and uh, one key point that I didn't mention here, but was the take home of our paper, was that we really need better constraints on the viscous deformation of phyllosilicate phases, which may change some of the outcomes. Uh, but just to close then uh, for the final study, um, if there is truly a correlation between near lithostatic pore pressure and slow slip, it might imply that that high pore fluid pressure is actually serving to activate frictionally weak rocks. And that is uh, one reason for that might explain the correlation. Um, thank you very much for, for your attention. Thanks very much, Melody, for that great talk. We now have time for questions. If you have any, please raise your hand and we'll call on you to unmute and show your video, or you can type them in the chat and we'll read them out. Um, while we wait for some, oh, maybe we have some. See that somebody is raising their hand, I'm trying to figure out who it is. Uh, Nick Beeler, go for it. Hi, Melody. Hey. <laughs> Great talk. Um, have you thought about two? I have sort of two questions. One is actually not really questions or statements, but you can you can straighten me out. Have you for the first is have you have you ever thought of actually since you know you're inferring from your last study that the stresses are liable to be quite low? Um, have you thought about doing experiments that you know at very High confining stress, but very, very high pore fluid pressure to really actually get into the. I mean, because these rates, the slow slip rates, are sort of strain rates that we can do in the lab. So you could sort of do temperature and effective stress at the sort of in situ conditions at the strain rates of interest, just to go ahead and make some direct measurements of the rheology. So, um, are you refer? Sir, are you referring to the last, the sort of. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So we are actually. So I'm. I can't physically in my lab right now get to those absolute values of pore pressures and confining pressures. Actually, nobody really, really can. We've tried uh, doing indirect ways in a Griggs rig, and it was sort of successful. Um, but we are to the limits of our abilities actually doing that. Just that right now on chlorite, uh, chlorite-rich rocks. Um, but it doesn't get us anywhere near the actual. Uh, magnitude of confining and pore pressure that we would need for the deep slow slip conditions. Um, one thing I would like to say is I'm, I was intentionally trying to not um, 
commit to saying we need high pore pressure and low shear stress, but saying if we do have high pore pressure, this would be the shear stress and these would be the rocks. And if we don't have high pore pressure, then this would be the shear stress and these would be the rocks, even though my own uh, understanding is that we're probably looking at the case where we have extremely low shear stresses and high pore pressures, if that makes any sense. But yeah, we are trying to do experiments that will start to get at some of this. And more, go ahead and unmute yourself if you'd like. Hi, Melody. Um, I was also interested in your um, your last part, the Arosa zone. It, I was wondering, is you did showed us the modeling studies. Was anyone actually looking at the um, the rocks themselves, the deformation textures, to see where slip may actually have been concentrated within that zone from from what the rocks are telling us? Y yes, this is um. So Kaylee. Kaylee is, uh, has a paper in revision right now to look at. She's focusing in that case on the metasedimentary rocks and trying to understand. Uh, and so I use public constitutive relation, published constitutive relationships, making a lot of simplifying assumptions. And so she's going back and sort of using actual rock textures to try to understand what are the mechanisms that we're seeing from the rock record. But she's focusing on the calcareous schists and the politic schists. Um, uh, we're also separately starting to look at some of the talc samples to understand those really hard to look at, much harder to look at um, mm -hmm. some of the talc, the talc structures and also the talc composition to figure out what, what is producing talc at these conditions. There are a number of different rea metasomatic reactions that might produce talc. So yes, that is sort of a slow ongoing process um, that we de I definitely agree is important and just is a lot slower than making simple models. <laughs> Well, certainly a, a talc zone is very commonly found next to the serpentinite and metasomatic reaction zones. Yeah. And something more crustal on the other side. Yeah, so our talc zone was, uh, talc zones were largely located in the fluorite schists. Mm. But. Yeah, so as you get closer to the um, crustal rocks, you, you get more aluminum there and the silica goes faster towards the serpentinite, which is why you get the talc. Yeah, I think, yeah, we'll um, keep that in mind. Okay, thank you. But definitely, the talc, they're definitely harder rocks to look at and interpret. Than I'm sure, but I like talc. <laughs> yes, I do. It's slow going, but it's going. Let's hear from Kirsty next, and then we'll go to David. Great. Hey, Melody. Um, thanks for the great talk. I'm Kirsty Haney. I'm Mendenhall postdoc at the Geologic Hazard Science Center in Golden. Uh, slow slip is out of my expertise, so pardon the naivety, but when you were talking about the Hikurangi margin, I thought it was very interesting that a lot, a lot of the slow slips seem to be occurring um, above where the Hikurangi Oceanic Plateau is subducting, if I saw that correctly. Um, and I just thought it was interesting that in South Central Alaska, we also have a slow slip and tremor um, above where the Yakutat oceanic plateau is subducting. So I was wondering if you put um, any thought into how oceanic plateau composition, or I guess really the fact that the compositional layers in oceanic plateau are much thicker than that of a normal or typical seafloor, how that could possibly affect the pore fluid pressures and hence slow slip. I mean, I guess it's really that you have this really like thick sediment layer, much thicker um, with oceanic plateaus than normal seafloor. So if you thought about that or if there's possibly any correlations between slow slip and thick sediments. Yeah, so this is something that there are a lot of people way more qualified than me could probably provide uh, much more uh, interesting answers about. But um, there's a, the, core, the spatial correlation between the subducting plateau and uh, so slip, shallow slow slip in particular is really interesting. And um, there, there are a number of things that we think could be going on or contributing. Um, one is that you have, like you said, thicker sediments. 
Um, one is uh, is sort of the mechanical heterogeneity imparted by having this sort of rigid structure subducting. And we've actually been trying to think uh, sort of here a little bit more about how that subducting uh, structure is going to influence the mechanical properties, potentially fluid conditions of the material, both at the leading and trailing edge, because you could imagine the sediment uh, properties varying spatially around that quite a bit just due to the differences in stress path that those sediments are taking. So, and then of course there's the influence that subducting that structure might have on deformation of the overriding plate and whether or not that plays any role. So there is a lot of really interesting questions there and I don't know the answer, but but the one that we're actually, oh, that I'm personally uh, trying to take a stab at next is that how do physical properties uh, sort of surrounding the, the subducting seamount, how that might play a role. Great, thanks very much. Okay, I think I'm next. Hi, hi, Melody. Thanks for a very interesting talk. Uh, I had a question about the porosity versus strength uh, calculations you did, and uh, I just was wondering if you if you know what have any estimate of the total offset on on this sort of fault because the uh, hanging wall, of course, is coming from greater depth, so it already had higher stresses by definition on it. So it does, can you make a correlation that way of the maximum depth where uh, where this material is coming from? So um, the offset, as, my, as I understand, this is not a calculation that I've done, but the offset based on mar uh, offset markers is about six kilometers. Uh, it's been thrust up, so uh, I th the estimate of material that's essentially been missing, missing from as overburdens, I think like 200 to 300 meters. So basically, um, all of the stuff in the hanging wall has been at a depth of about 200 to 300 meters greater than it is now. If that makes any. Yeah. So so that gives you an automatic offset in the strength because it's. Mm -hmm been brought up so does that match not, uh, not the strength that you're seeing it doesn't match no we, we did that comparison uh so that doesn't bring the strength quite up enough to match the strengths that we're seeing it's still a little it's still a bit stronger than we would predict even just from being buried at higher depths but not a given the like just the stress path that it would have taken during the sort of thrusting process i'm not super convinced I can really ever figure out what I mean it, it's very clear that it, it's, it's not surprising that it's been strengthened uh, it's not surprising that the stress state is very different than a uniaxial consolidation strength stress state and I'm not I've sort of given up trying to <laughs> to interpret the hanging wall I guess <laughs> uh, just mostly focusing on understanding the foot wall which seems a little bit more constrainable okay Thanks. And looks like we have another one from Nick. You want to jump back on? Go for it. Sure. Um, so one of the things that I thought was really cool about this talk was that you focused both on the physical and mechanical properties of both the very shallow and the quite deep um, regions that support this kind of phenomenon. And it, they're so very different, you would think that the observations, especially of the seismic components, the tremor or the LFEs, would be really different in the two cases. And I remember you said at the outset that there's issues uh, resolving earthquakes in the shallow because of the, the way the networks are. But do you, what are your thoughts on sort of diagnostic or, or properties that are going to give us some clue as to whether these two behaviors are come are actually the same thing you know mechanically or whether they're just sort of sort of a coincidence that you get these kind of phenomenon basically when you lower the effective stress or something like that but there's some diagnostic you know physics in in the signals that would tell us that they indeed are different or or somehow the same crazy statement question for it that's a 
that question feels a little above my pay grade, to be honest. <laughs> um, uh, so diagnostics and like the geophysical signatures, like the in the. Oh, wow. Yeah, frequency content or something like that of the Trump or, you know, I, I don't know. You wouldn't think that they would be the same at all just because they're so temperatures are so different. You know? No, I completely agree that that I'm. Um, uh, you have a lot more faith in my ability to answer questions than I think I deserve. But um, the answer is I agree. I I'm, would be completely surprised to find out that they're necessarily or that they're the same the same thing um yet they both seem to potentially correlate with blood pressure although we really have so few uh observations of the shallow phenomena that it's hard it's really hard to compare even um uh the reason i sort of do the uh yeah I don't know if they're the same thing, and I don't. Right. I don't know. I don't know. Right. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know if you would tell me. No. All right. So, um, we are running up against the end of our time block here. So thank you everyone for attending this week's seminar, and thanks again, Melody, for a great presentation. Uh, we'll conclude the formal seminar and recording now, uh, but if you'd like to stick around to introduce yourselves, uh, chat with the, the speaker in a more casual environment uh, or ask more questions, please feel free to stick around. Um, otherwise, thanks again.